Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we come to you this morning, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us as we continue this series on the temptation of Jesus, Father. Lord, I ask that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Lord, this is a, an interesting passage. It's a passage that we've heard so many times that it's easy to just blow over it. It's easy to, to not really think about it. It's easy, Father, to just not give it much thought at all. Lord, there's so much in this passage to mind. There's so much to think about and wrestle with, Lord. Open our hearts. Teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome on this spring break. I know a lot of folks are out of town this week and uh, next week. I'm glad you all could join us this morning. Um, Katie Zezema, I was reading, uh, she's a New York Times columnist or a writer, and she read in, uh, wrote in July 16, 2006, the Huntington River Gorge near Richmond, Vermont, is beautiful but deadly. And she writes that in the last 40 years, 20 persons, mostly young adults in their 20s and 30s, have lost their lives in the gorge. Hundreds of gorge swimmers have been injured. On the surface of the water, the gorge looks calm and placid. How many of you have seen these calm and placid rivers and areas that look so beautiful? But beneath it are strong currents that run swiftly over treacherous waterfalls and whirlpools. Public safety officials have designated the gorge the single most deadly place in the state. Warning signs have been posted on a sign of the gorge reading, when the water is high due to rain or snow melt, especially powerful currents can easily sweep you over the falls and trap you underneath the water. People are debating about what to do about the gorge, she writes. Some argue... For more public information about the gorge's risks, others want to ban anyone from visiting the place. Meanwhile, swimmers continue to be attracted to the scene. One college student attending the University of Vermont, just 14 miles from the gorge, said she had heard about the beauty of the Huntington River Gorge and wanted to see it. And she said people already know about the dangers, and they try their best to be careful. You can't change the water, and you can't stop people from going in, she said. The great illustration of sin. You can't change sin. And you can't stop people from going in. Sin is beautiful. How many of you have found sin to be beautiful? Think about it. Think about your last bad sin. Wasn't it beautiful? Wasn't it tasty? Isn't that why you did it? Why didn't you stop yourself? How many of you... And your last couple of sins, how many of you have had this experience? You knew what you were about to do was bad. You knew it was wrong. You knew it was sinful. And yet, you kept on going towards it, and you did it anyway. Why'd you do it? Why'd you do it? Because it felt good. Because sin is great. Sin is nice. And that's why we do it. And that's why people jump in this river. They don't care about the danger. It looks so nice on top. Now, sure, there are times when sin is ugly, and it's easy for us to bypass. But I would suggest to you that even during those times, it's really because of the culture that surrounds us, right? If 
Like currently in our culture, what are some sins that are like easy for us to bypass? Currently in our culture, nobody likes greed. Greed seems ugly. It's not really that greed is ugly because of Christianity. Greed is ugly because of other aspects of our culture. And we hear all around, we don't like greed. And so we deny it. But if we grew up in another culture where we didn't hear that greed was bad all the time, would we fight it? How about grotesque violence? We don't like grotesque violence. We don't want to see, well, maybe in the movies. But we don't like grotesque violence all around us. But, but, what if you grew up a Viking? What if you grew up in Viking culture? What if you grew up in ancient Ireland? land of my wife. You might still carry some of those traits, just saying. If you grew up in those cultures, violence was glorified. Did you know that? If you were a Viking warrior, if you were a Viking male, you couldn't get into Valhalla unless you died in battle. You wanted battle. You glorified battle. When St. Patrick went to first minister in Ireland, chieftains, when they went to battle, would put on a belt, and they would have the heads of their enemies on that belt. They glorified it. Many cultures have glorified violence. If you grew up in that society, and someone came and told you that violence was wicked, you would mock them as ridiculous. Sin is beautiful. We love it. And in our culture today, there are many sins that are encouraged, that are beautiful. And we as Christians are increasingly mocked for not loving those sins, aren't we? Right? That's just the way it is. And that's the way it's going to be. In our passage this morning, Jesus faces temptation by the master of temptation himself, Satan. We talked a little bit about Satan last week. Jesus is going to face temptation in a way that none of us are ever going to face temptation. None of us are ever going to face Satan himself, most likely, but certainly not in this way, where he's going to throw these kinds of temptations at us. Three in a row. Three serious temptations. He's going to face it in a way that we never will. But the stakes of this temptation, the stakes of these three temptations, are extremely high. When we look at this passage, it's it's simple to want to bypass it. Three temptations in a passage this big. We just kind of want to blow past it and read the rest of the Gospels because they're more interesting to us. And yet, in this passage... These three temptations, if Jesus fails, the Godhood is crushed. And we are not going to be saved. Our salvation is over. Did you know that? God is destroyed and salvation is finished. That's what is at stake in this passage. And it's kind of interesting that the gospel writers only give it that much when you think about what's at stake here. This passage is really deep. And so last week, we looked at the opening verses of this passage. We looked at the existence of the devil, right? A lot of us don't really want to, we don't really want to give credit to the devil. We don't want to think about the devil. We don't want to actually believe in the devil. 
the fact that there is a devil is kind of awkward for a lot of Christians. We want to believe in God, that's okay. We'll believe in Jesus, that's okay. Angels, iffy. But the devil, no. And we looked all the way through Scripture, and we saw that Scripture doesn't really give us an option to believe in the devil or not. Right? All the way through, there is a Satan and there are demons. And especially right here. This passage here says that there is a devil. And that's uncomfortable to a lot of us. But now here, in our lectionary, we're shown this passage, and it's connected to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And that's what we're going to study this morning. We can't go into all of it, so I'm going to just kind of pick some of the more important points that we need to grasp in this passage. The temptation of Jesus is in part to be read against the backdrop of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it's to be read against Israel wandering in the wilderness. So you really need to know your Old Testament when you're reading Matthew. Matthew really demands that. really need to know your Old Testament when you read Hebrews. You really need to know your Old Testament when you read Revelation. Everybody wants to do a Revelation study, right, when I'm doing a Bible study with them. But I always ask them, how well do you know your Old Testament? Because if you don't know your Old Testament, I can't explain to you Revelation. Well, the same in Matthew. If you don't know your Old Testament, it's going to be really hard to understand the Gospel of Matthew. And right here, Matthew is contrasting what's happening with the temptations to what's happening in the Garden of Eden, and a little bit in what's happening in the Exodus. And that's why you want to know, and that's why the, the, excuse me, the lectionary writers put these passages together. And so I'm going to just focus on a few points this morning that you need to understand. So first, notice that when Satan approaches Jesus in Matthew 4, 1 to 2, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 nights and 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's the first point you need to notice. Before Satan comes, Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And here we have probably the biggest understatement in all of Scripture, right? If you fasted one day, how many of you have fasted till Wednesday night like we do? You fasted breakfast, you fasted lunch, and then by the time you get to dinner, are you hungry? Right? How many of you have fasted two days or three days? You're hungry. Can you imagine fasting 40 days and 40 nights? So by the time Satan comes for the first temptation, how ravenous is Jesus? Can you even fathom that? And this is when Satan shows up. He doesn't show up on day three. He doesn't show up on day seven, day 14, day 20. He shows up on day 41. So Jesus is now in a weakened state. He may even be in a delirious state. We don't know. Jesus is struggling at this point. Now, this is to be contrasted with the Garden of Eden. When does he show up to Adam and Eve? We're not told what day, but how long have Adam and Eve been fasting? Not at all. In fact, what are Adam and Eve surrounded by? Plenty, right? They've got the whole Garden of Eden. They can pluck from any tree in the garden, right? Anything that, well, not one. There's like one tree filled with Brussels sprouts that they can't eat from, right? And like all Brussels sprouts, like Brussels sprouts look delicious. 
Now, when you eat a Brussels sprout, you find out it's the most vile thing on the planet. But at first, it looks good, right? And so this tree of Brussels sprouts hangs in the center, looking tempting, but filled with evil, right? That's how I read it, at least. You may fill it with some other fruit or whatever. Adam and Eve are not in that situation, but Jesus is. What else is kind of interesting is Adam and Eve, during the sin, we find out in the third chapter, the Lord God walks in the garden, and they're not surprised by that. They kind of hide. So we can kind of speculate, or at least I speculate, that the Lord had been visiting them. So they had been in regular communication with the Lord. That's at least my speculation. But it seems like it because they're not startled by the Lord walking in the garden. Rather, they're ashamed because at this point, after they've eaten the fruit of the Brussels sprout and they've realized that this is evil, right, and sin is contained in all Brussels sprouts, they've realized all of this. Now they're ashamed to be in the presence of the Lord. And this is what's going on. But they're not surprised that he's walking there, which meant, at some point at least, they're in the presence of the Lord. This is, and so Satan, when he comes, comes when the Lord is not present, but at least they've been around him. Jesus, on the other hand, now has, and he's working and operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's been fasting and praying, right? But he's in a weakened state. And that's what you need to compare. So Jesus now faces this temptation in a much different state than Adam and Eve. And yet he's going to conquer this. And so when Satan comes, he asks what? He asks a simple request of both of them. And that's what you also need to understand. I mean, to us, these temptations both seem really stupid. All he asks Jesus is, turn this bread, or turn this stone into a bread. Simple enough, right? Matthew 4, 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He's hungry. Why is this a big deal? I look at this and say, how in the world is this a temptation? I mean, how many of you have read that passage and said, what's going on here? I read that all the time. What in the world is going on? Why is this a sin? The same thing with Adam and Eve. Why is it a sin to eat that fruit? I mean, all these other fruits, why would God even say that? All you have to do is not eat the fruit in the middle. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice the simplicity. Make a rock into bread. Don't eat this piece of fruit. Satan comes and gives a simple temptation to both of them. And yet, within that simple temptation lies the destruction of humanity. Both of them. Satan does that to us all the time. Some of the most simple temptations hide some of the darkest destruction. 
We dismiss temptations as stupid all the time, don't we? That's, that's kind of how our mind works. Nobody gets into drugs thinking that it's a big deal. Nobody gets into alcohol think, alcoholism thinking it's a big deal. Nobody steals something at work thinking it's a big deal. We always justify it away. Right? That's the first way we get into a sin. It's no big deal. And that's what's happening here. Both times. Did God really say, turn this stone into bread? Now, in Adam and Eve's case, they had anything they wanted. So the temptation shouldn't have been. It should have been easy to dismiss. In Jesus' case, 40 days he hadn't eaten. 40 days. Turn it into bread. A much bigger temptation. So he faces it, and he defeats him. But what's the sin here? Well, God has said, no, don't eat. The point of Jesus' fasting was to draw near to God, and God will tell him when to break the fast. Satan has come to break Jesus' time with God, and that's what the temptation is about. Dude, you're hungry, and you're God. Eat. That's, what Jesus, that's why Jesus quotes him a line from the Hebrews' time in the wilderness when Moses explains to the Hebrews why God gave them the manna instead of having them provide all kinds of food for themselves. Matthew 4.4, 4, but he answered, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's a great reminder to us as well. We are called to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We're called to live by Scripture. Why? Because Scripture gives us the eternal words of God. It's more powerful than any food that we eat. That lesson was given to the Hebrews in the wilderness. That's why they live on manna. That's why God doesn't give them steak all the time. That's why he doesn't give him peanut butter, Jif peanut butter, the finest food on the planet. He doesn't give him those things because he wants them to understand that they're surviving on God and God alone. In the second temptation, Jesus undoes one of the major falls of the Hebrew in Massa, where they test God, Exodus 17, 1 and 2. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Here, Satan takes Jesus to the temple says, throw yourself off if you're God. Seems kind of stupid when you read this thing. I mean, it doesn't seem like much of a temptation at all. But remember, this is Satan talking to Jesus. So if the king of temptation himself was tempting Jesus, we have to think that there was a level of taunting going on that was incredible. You're not God. You're not God. You can't do anything. What kind of person are you? You're starving to death in the wilderness. If God was really with you, wouldn't you be eating now? Why do you even have to fast? You're God. God doesn't need to fast. You're close to him. Why would God even put you in this situation? Why are you saving these people? He had to be mocking and taunting and doing it moment after moment, day after day, 
moment time after time. He had to be going and messing with Jesus to the point where Jesus wanted to say, Stop! There had to be something going on. This was a major temptation. And in the middle of this temptation, Jesus doesn't give in. Once again, he refuses. You shall not, Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. Clearly a reference to this event. So as Jesus pulling out this verse, this was when Moses was talking to the Hebrews about that event when they were testing him with water. They were, they were crying out to the Lord. The Hebrews were testing God. They were angry at God. They were, they were mocking him. God can't provide after all you had done. Jesus here is getting taunted, and yet he pulls out this verse on what Deuteronomy says. When, when Moses says in Deuteronomy, don't test the Lord in a commandment like you did then, Jesus pulls out this verse now, and he says, don't test the Lord like you did at Massa. He reminds and seems to undo what happened there. And then we get to the third temptation. Both the first and the third temptation are reversing the fall of Adam and Eve. Matthew 4, 9 through 10. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. It's because in the third temptation, Satan offers a false godhood to Jesus just as he did to Adam and Eve. Scholars kind of argue over this third temptation. What does he show? He goes to the top of a mountain. Did he show him all the kingdoms of the earth at that point? Or does he show him all the kingdoms that ever will be? I think that because it's an eternal being talking to an eternal being, the temptation that takes place here is Jesus is showing him every kingdom, every land, everything that will ever be, and probably every spiritual kingdom that will ever be. Satan says, I'll give you all of this if you'll just serve me. Look at what God's done to you. Look at these peons whom you're serving and helping. Look at what's going to happen to you. If you come to me, you can serve. You can, you can be king. And they'll serve you. What a temptation that would be. He doesn't have to die for us. He doesn't have to get mocked for, by us. He doesn't have to be on the cross. He doesn't have to have these people that he's supposed to be here to save, torture him, and spit on him, and do all those things to him. Rather, he can simply rule them, make us their sla- his slaves. Once again, Jesus turns it down. And Satan is defeated. So we'll end with this. What does it teach us? What does this passage teach us? Why does Matthew put it here? Well, as I said, the stakes of this temptation are super high. If Jesus fails here, you're not saved. I'm not saved. No one is saved. If Jesus fails here, the Godhead collapses. Jesus falls into sin. Can you imagine what would happen 
if one of the Trinity fell into darkness? I can't. What would the ramifications of that be? If Jesus became a sinner. You see, when Adam fell, all of creation fell with him. And he was the head of all. And the sin nature was instilled in all of us. We are all sinners because we were born into sin. We can't help it. When Satan tempts Jesus, he's trying to undo the salvation that is going about to come through James. When he tempted Adam, he wanted all of humanity to fall into sin. When he tempts Jesus, he wants to undo the salvation that is about to come. But Jesus doesn't fall. He is God and he is man. And not only does Jesus overcome these temptations, he overcomes them in an incredibly weakened state. And he faces the temptations by the king of temptation himself. But one of the major things we also learn from this passage is not only does he overcome them, he overcomes them by a power that you and I are also given. Notice at the very beginning, because this is very critical to Matthew and Mark and Luke, he does it by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus doesn't do this in his, in his all-powerful, God-like state. He's emptied himself, Philippians says, already of his God-like power. And he's become one of us. So when he does this, he does this in the power of the Holy Spirit. And with the aid of the Holy Spirit. And this power of the Holy Spirit then is given to us as believers. We have this power as well. Now we're not like Jesus because he was without sin. But this power of the Holy Spirit is given to us who are sinners, to we who are sinners, right? We have this power of the Holy Spirit. So the next time you're facing sin and you're facing that dark moment of temptation, know that there are times you're going to fall and you're going to fail. We all do. But know that you have to struggle with it, but you don't need to struggle on your own. Struggle with God. Give it to God. And know that when you struggle, you need to struggle and struggle with the Holy Spirit. Struggle in the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray. Pray to God to give you help. Pray to the Holy Spirit to help you through it. When you fall, confess your sin. Understand you're going to fail. And then pray to God to help. Have your brothers and sisters in Christ help you. Come together as a community to help you. But give it to God. And move forward and understand that no matter how much you want to do it in your own power, you can't. It takes God's power to overcome sin. Jesus didn't do it on his own. And if he couldn't do it on his own, how in the world can you? It took the power of the Holy Spirit when he was on earth. How much more will it take the power of the Holy Spirit in you while you're on earth? Right? Amen.